Section 3 of The Awful German Language by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsten Weber. Section 3. However, it is not well to dwell too much on the separable verbs. One is sure to lose his temper early, and if he sticks to the subject and will not be warned, it will at last either soften his brain or petrify it. Personal pronouns and adjectives are a fruitful nuisance in this language, and should have been left out. For instance, the same sound, Z, means you, and it means she, and it means her, and it means it, and it means they, and it means them. Think of the ragged poverty of a language which has to make one word do the work of six, and a poor little weak thing of only three letters at that. But mainly think of the exasperation of never knowing which of these meanings the speaker is trying to convey. This explains why, whenever a person says Z to me, I generally try to kill him if a stranger. Now observe the adjective. Here was a case where simplicity would have been an advantage, Therefore, for no other reason, the inventor of this language complicated it all he could. When we wish to speak of our good friend or friends, in our enlightened tongue, we stick to the one form, and have no trouble or hard feeling about it. But with the German tongue it is different. When a German gets his hands on an adjective, he declines it, and keeps on declining it, until common sense is all declined out of it. It is as bad as Latin. He says, for instance, singular, nominative, mein guter Freund, my good friend, genitive, meines guten Freundes, of my good friend, dative, meinem guten Freund, to my good friend. Accusative, meinen guten Freund, my good friend. Plural, nominative, meine guten Freunde, my good friends. Genitive, meiner guten Freunde, of my good friends. Dative, meinen guten Freunden, to my good friends. Accusative, meine guten Freunde, my good friends. Now, let the candidate for the asylum try to memorize those variations and see how soon he will be elected. One might better go without friends in Germany than take all this trouble about them. I have shown what a bother it is to decline a good male friend. Well, this is only a third of the work, for there is a variety of new distortions of the adjective to be learned when the object is feminine and still another when the object is neuter. Now, there are more adjectives in this language than there are black cats in Switzerland, and they must all be as elaborately declined as the examples above suggest. Difficult? Troublesome? These words cannot describe it. I heard a Californian student in Heidelberg say, in one of his calmest moods, that he would rather decline two drinks than one German adjective. The inventor of the language seems to have taken pleasure in complicating it in every way he could think. For instance, 
If one is casually referring to a house, house, or a horse, Pferd, or a dog, Hund, he spells these words as I have indicated. But if he is referring to them in the dative case, he sticks on a foolish and unnecessary e, and spells them hause, Pferde, Hunde. So, as an added e often signifies the plural, as the s does with us, the new student is likely to go on for a month making twins out of a dative dog before he discovers his mistake. And on the other hand, many a new student who could ill afford loss has bought and paid for two dogs and only got one of them because he ignorantly bought that dog in the dative singular when he really supposed he was talking plural, which left the law on the seller's side, of course, by the strict rules of grammar, and therefore a suit for recovery could not lie. In German, all the nouns begin with a capital letter. Now that is a good idea, and a good idea in this language is necessarily conspicuous from its lonesomeness. I consider this capitalizing of nouns a good idea because, by reason of it, you are almost always able to tell a noun the minute you see it. You fall into error occasionally, because you mistake the name of a person for the name of a thing, and waste a good deal of time trying to dig a meaning out of it. German names almost always do mean something, and this helps to deceive the student. I translated a passage one day which said that, quote, the infuriated tigress broke loose and utterly ate up the unfortunate fir forest, end quote. Tannenwald. When I was girding up my loins to doubt this, I found out that Tannenwald, in this instance, was a man's name. Every noun has a gender, and there is no sense or system in the distribution, so the gender of each must be learned separately and by heart. There is no other way. To do this, one has to have a memory like a memorandum book. In German, a young lady has no sex, while a turnip has. Think what overwrought reverence that shows for the turnip, and what callous disrespect for the girl. See how it looks in print. I translate this from a conversation in one of the best German Sunday school books. Quote, Gretchen. Wilhelm, where is the turnip? Wilhelm, she has gone to the kitchen. Gretchen, where is the accomplished and beautiful English maiden? Wilhelm, it has gone to the opera. End quote. To continue with the German genders, a tree is male, its buds are female, its leaves are neuter. Horses are sexless, dogs are male, cats are female, tomcats included, of course. A person's mouth, neck, bosom, elbows, fingers, nails, feet, and body are of the male sex, and his head is male or neuter, according to the word selected to signify it, and not according to the sex of the individual who wears it, for in Germany all the women wear either male heads or sexless ones. 
A person's nose, lips, shoulders, breast, hands, and toes are of the female sex, and his hair, ears, eyes, chin, legs, knees, heart, and conscience haven't any sex at all. The inventor of the language probably got what he knew about a conscience from hearsay. Now, by the above dissection, the reader will see that in Germany a man may think he is a man, but when he comes to look into the matter more closely, he is bound to have his doubts. He finds that, in sober truth, he is a most ridiculous mixture. If he ends by trying to comfort himself with the thought that he can at least depend on a third of this mess as being manly and masculine, the humiliating second thought will quickly remind him that, in this respect, he is no better off than any woman or cow in the land. In the German, it is true that by some oversight of the inventor of the language a woman is female, but a wife, weib, is not, which is unfortunate. A wife here has no sex, she is neuter, so, according to the grammar, a fish is he, his scales are she, but a fish-wife is neither. To describe a wife as sexless may be called under-description. That is bad enough, but over-description is surely worse. A German speaks of an Englishman as the Engländer. To change the sex, he adds in, and that stands for English woman, Engländerin. That seems descriptive enough, but still it is not exact enough for a German. So he precedes the word with that article, which indicates that the creature to follow is feminine, and writes it down thus, quote, die Engländerin, end quote, which means, quote, the she Englishwoman, end quote. I consider that that person is over-described. Well, after the student has learned the sex of a great number of nouns, he is still in a difficulty, because he finds it impossible to persuade his tongue to refer to things as he and she and him and her, which it has always been accustomed to refer to as it. When he even frames a German sentence in his mind, with the hims and hers in the right places, and then works up his courage to the utterance point, it is no use. The moment he begins to speak, his tongue flies the track, and all those labored males and females come out as its. And even when he is reading German to himself, he always calls those things it, whereas he ought to read it this way. Tale of the Fishwife and Its Sad Fate Footnote 2 I capitalize the nouns in the German and ancient English fashion. End of footnote 2. It is a bleak day. Hear the rain how he pours, and the hail how he rattles, and see the snow how he drifts along, and of the mud how deep he is. Ah, the poor fishwife! It is stuck fast in the mire. It has dropped its basket of fishes, and its hands have been cut by the scales, as it seizes some of the falling creatures. 
and one scale has even gotten into its eye, and it cannot get her out. It opens its mouth to cry for help, but if any sound comes out of him, alas, he is drowned by the raging of the storm. And now a tomcat has got one of the fishes, and she will surely escape with him. No, she bites off a fin. She holds her in her mouth. Will she swallow her? No, the fishwife's brave mother dog deserts his puppies and rescues the fin, which he eats himself as his reward. Oh, horror! The lightning has struck the fish-basket. He sets him on fire. See the flame, how she licks the doomed utensil with her red and angry tongue. Now she attacks the helpless fishwife's foot. She burns him up, all but the big toe, and even she is partly consumed. And still she spreads, still she waves her fiery tongues. She attacks the fishwife's leg and destroys it. She attacks its hand and destroys her. She attacks the fishwife's leg and destroys her also. She attacks its body and consumes him. She wreathes herself about its heart and it is consumed. Next about its breast and in a moment she is a cinder. Now she reaches its neck. He goes, now its chin, it goes, now its nose, she goes. In another moment, except help come, the fishwife will be no more. Time presses. Is there none to succor and save? Yes, joy, joy, with flying feet, the she-Englishwoman comes. But, alas, the generous she-female is too late. Where now is the fated fishwife? It has ceased from its sufferings. It has gone to a better land. All that is left of it, for its loved ones to lament over, is this poor smouldering ash-heap. Ah, woeful, woeful ash-heap! Let us take him up tenderly, reverently, upon the lowly shovel, and bear him to his long rest with the prayer that when he rises again it will be a realm where he will have one good, square, responsible sex, and have it all to himself, instead of having a mangy lot of assorted sexes scattered all over him in spots. There, now, the reader can see for himself that this pronoun business is a very awkward thing for the unaccustomed tongue. I suppose that in all languages the similarities of look and sound between words which have no similarity in meaning are a fruitful source of perplexity to the foreigner. It is so in our tongue, and it is notably the case in the German. Now there is that troublesome word famelt. To me it has so close a resemblance, either real or fancied, to three or four other words that I never know whether it means despised, painted, suspected, or married, until I look in the dictionary, and then I find it means the latter. There are lots of such words, and they are a great torment. To increase the difficulty, 
There are words which seem to resemble each other, and yet do not, but they make just as much trouble as if they did. For instance, there is the word famiten, to let, to lease, to hire, and the word verheiraten, another way of saying to marry. I heard of an Englishman who knocked at a man's door in Heidelberg and proposed in the best German he could command to, quote, verheiraten, end quote, that house. Then there are some words which mean one thing when you emphasize the first syllable, but mean something very different if you throw the emphasis on the last syllable. For instance, there is a word which means a runaway or the act of glancing through a book, according to the placing of the emphasis, and another word which signifies to associate with a man or to avoid him, according to where you put the emphasis, and you can generally depend on putting it in the wrong place and getting into trouble. End of section 3